Are we done? Ready? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. So in our previous lesson, we began with the tafsir of um, Surah Al-Masad, and uh, you know, it's also known as Surah Tabbat Yada Bilahabi Wa Tabban. The other names that we mentioned of this surah, um, it is a surah, as we said, that is Mecca, so pre-Hijrah by Ijma'. Right? And it's the first surah that we've come across, starting from Surah Nast and Falak and Ikhlas. It's the first surah that we've come across where there hasn't been a difference of opinion on that issue. Because every other surah, Ikhlas, Falak Nas, the scholars differed, is it Makki or Madani? Surah Masad is the first one that they all agreed, Bil that it is a Makki surah. And we mentioned the cause of revelation, and that's the famous story that's mentioned. Its, its origin is in Sahih al-Bukhari, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas, about the famous incident of the Prophet wasallam calling his people to Islam, and Abu Lahab standing up and saying, may you perish, right? May you perish, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down this surah. I think where we finished last week, we started the first verse, but we were um, speaking more about Abu Lahab and his life, and his demise, and how, how he passed away, how he died. Um, and I think where we finished is... Uh, an interesting point that, that uh, Ibn Abdul Bar, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous Maliki jurist, he mentions concerning um, the sons of Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab had a number of children. Some of them later on became Muslims, they became companions. From amongst his sons were two, Utbah and Utaybah. And those two sons were betrothed to the two daughters of our Prophet, Ruqayya and Umm Kulthum, radiyallahu anhumah. This is before Islam. And they hadn't yet consummated the marriage. And I think there is a difference amongst the historians, whether it was just a contract or whether it was just a betrothal, meaning in the sense that they were engaged, but yet not conducted the marriage ceremony. There, is, there seems to be a difference of opinion, and Allah knows best. But the point is that they were betrothed. And then once this incident took place that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah Al-Masad, that's mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari, Abu Lahab and his wife, they said to their two sons that if you don't divorce the two daughters of the Prophet ﷺ, we will never speak to you again, we will never look at you again. And so they broke off that marriage or they broke off that engagement. And then obviously as we know, both of those daughters of the Prophet ﷺ were later going to marry who? Uthman ibn Affan radiyallahu anhum ajma'in. Okay, and so that was before Islam or in the early years of Islam. So I think that's where we finished um, last week, right? So and, and we spoke about how Abu Lahab died and, and, and you know after the Battle of Badr. So he lived for like a good period of time in the life of the Prophet about 14, 15 years of prophethood. He's alive because the Battle of Badr took place in the second year of the Hijrah. So he's alive for the 13 years of Mecca, a couple of years kind of in Medina. So he's a good, he's alive for a good 14, 15 years of prophethood. And then he, his demise comes, right? And Allah Azza wa mentions that he will die as a non-Muslim, right? And it's something which Allah Azza wa promises in the Qur'an because of this surah. And that's not uncommon. I mean, it's not unheard of. It is uncommon in the sense that the vast majority of the enemies of Islam in those early days, it's not mentioned specifically, they're not mentioned by name, that they will die as non-Muslims. With the exception of a few people like Abu Jahl, like Umayyah ibn Khalaf, 
unlike Abu Lahab, that the kufr or the disbelief and the enmity to Islam was so far gone that their hearts had become sealed from guidance and that they would never uh, attain guidance or that they would never believe in the Prophet wasallam and accept Islam. And so Allah Azzawajal predicted, predict, uh, prophesied or told us of their demise upon kufr and upon disbelief. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, ta'ala, he has a, a very nice statement um, in his, um, I think it's in his Majmu' al-Fatawa. He says that these two people, or rather Abu Lahab specifically, is the only enemy of the Prophet that was mentioned by name in the Qur'an. He's the only enemy of Islam that is mentioned by name in the Qur'an. So Pharaoh is mentioned, but even Pharaoh, it's not his name, right? Pharaoh is his title. Pharaoh is the position that he held. It's not really his name. But then you have other people whose names are mentioned, like Qarun and Haman, and others who are mentioned by name. But those are from previous prophets, from the enemies of Islam and the enemies of the Prophet wasallam. The only one that was mentioned by name is Abu Lahab, right? And Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala says, and that's because of his relationship to the Prophet wasallam. Because something which Allah Azza focuses on in the Qur'an, in a number of the stories of the Prophets, is how sometimes the closest of people were the ones who were their most ardent enemies and opponents, right? So we have the story of, for example, Nuh alayhi salam, Lut alayhi salam, Ibrahim alayhi salam, right? Where their close family members are the ones who oppose them and the ones who reject them. Here we have something similar. Before the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, it's his uncle, Abu Lahab, that he rejects Islam and he doesn't accept Islam. Not only that, but he's an ardent enemy, an opponent of Islam and of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala says that when someone is closer to a person or closer to one of the prophets of Allah and they reject them, then it is possible that their punishment is also more severe. And he uses as proof of this another verse of the Qur'an, this time in Surah Al-Hasab when Allah Azza wa Jal speaks about the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he says, مَن يَأْتِ مِن كُنَّا بِفَاحِشَةٍ مُبَيِّنَةٍ يُضَاعَفْ لَهَا الْعَذَابُ ضِعْفَيْنِ Whosoever from amongst you brings a open sin, then they will have double the punishment. They will have double the punishment. Why? Because they are the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. Their punishment becomes more severe because of their connection, their relationship to the Prophet ﷺ. So this is something which Ibn Taymiyyah mentions. And then he goes on to say, and that's why in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us the four different variations of how a husband and wife, a spousal partnership or a spousal marriage works in relation to iman and disbelief. Right? He gave us all four examples. You have the examples of when both husband and wife are believers. For example, the, the, the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, and his wives, the Prophet وسلم, and his wives. You have the example in the Quran of a family that, where you have both the mother and the father, the husband and the wife, both of them believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you have the opposite example, where both of them disbelieve. They reject, right? And the example is this surah, Abu Lahab and his wife. And Allah Azza wa makes mention of his wife explicitly. Right? right? As we'll speak about, he mentions, Allah Azza wa mentions his wife explicitly. So that's the second type of variation. The third type of variation in marriage when it comes to iman and disbelief is where the husband believes and the wife disbelieves. Right? An example is 
Lut alayhi salam and Nuh alayhi salam. Darab Allahu mathal al-lazina kafaru mra'ata Nuhin wa mra'ata Lut. Right in Surah Al-Tahreem. Allah Azza wa Jalla sets forth the example, the parable of those who disbelieve in the wife of Lut and the wife of Nuh alayhi salam. Two prophets of Allah who believed their wives rejected their message. Right? And as you know, like it's one of the closest relationships right, that we have in life is the relationship between a husband and wife. But they reject it. And the fourth variation is obviously the opposite of that, where the wife believes and the husband rejects. And that's the example of the wife of Pharaoh, Fir'aun Asiya, alayhi salam. That's also mentioned in Surah Al-Tahreem, Allahu, amanu ra'ata Fir'aun. And Allah sets forth the example, the parable, for those who believe believe in the wife of Pharaoh, right? that she accepted Islam, and Pharaoh obviously rejected Islam and rejected the, uh, the prophethood of Musa alayhi salatu wasalam. So Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah says, therefore the Qur'an brings to us, as it does in many issues, all of these different variations, right? because whatever you're experiencing, whatever difficulty you may be going through, whatever the hardship may be, whichever angle you may be exposed from, there is something that you can find in the Qur'an that relates to your situation. So if it's parents, you have the story of Ibrahim. If it's children, you have the story of Nuh salam. If it's spouses, then you have the stories of these other prophets of Allah wasalam. And if it's extended family or further out, uncles, aunts and so on, you have the example of the Prophet wasalam, with his uncle Abu Lahab. Right? And so therefore the Qur'an speaks about all of these different variations in terms of relationships and how you have people that believe and people who disbelieve. So that's what it relates to as it relates to Abu Lahab, this individual that we all know of, that we've heard of, that Allah Azza wa Jal mentions explicitly in the Qur'an. So beginning with uh, verse number one where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Tabbat yada abi lahabin wa tab. This word tab, uh, Ibn Ashur in his tafsir, Ibn Ashur is a contemporary scholar of tafsir, relatively contemporary, he passed away, rahimahullah, uh, he passed away in the 1970s, and he's a scholar from Tunisia. He has a famous book of tafsir that is called At-Tahrir wa Tanweer. And as with many books of tafsir, there are you know, strong points and weak points and mistakes and so on. But he's, one of the things that his tafsir is renowned for and it's well known for is issues of language. Arabic grammar, eloquence, language, it's, it's very well versed in those issues. He says in his tafsir concerning this surah, he says that Allah Azza wa begins with this word tabbat. And the word tab, as we'll come and we'll speak about, kind of means to perish, to be destroyed. Right? And he says that Allah Azza wa begins with this word from the off, from the very beginning of this surah, so that we're under no other impression, we're under, the, or we're under no illusion that this surah was revealed for anything other than to show the punishment of Abu Lahab, to show how extreme or how, um, how strong a punishment that Abu Lahab would receive because of his enmity for the Prophet wasallam. Right? And therefore it is also important to remember that the punishment that Abu Lahab receives that Allah mentions in this surah is not just simply because of one incident. It's not just simply because of that narration that we mentioned that is the cause of revelation, but it is because of a number of events that will continue after that. Right? It will continue after that for many years. His enmity all the way through to the end of his life and throughout 
the 14 or 15 years that he's alive through the prophethood of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So you have, for example, as we mentioned last week, his his role in the boycott of the Muslims when they went to the Shi'ab of Abu Talib, his role in trying to harm the Prophet ﷺ, his role in when the Prophet ﷺ wanted to migrate to Medina and the Quraysh came together and they decided that they were trying to assassinate, they would assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. Abu Lahab is an integral, uh, if you like, playmaker in all of those situations. And so therefore it is as a culmination of all of those events that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him this great punishment, right? this grievous punishment. And so Allah begins with the word tabbat. <clears throat> what does a tab mean? Tab means linguistically, and, and we'll go through the different um, statements of the scholars of tafsir, but it means to be destroyed. Right? It means to be destroyed. In Arabic language, they say to a woman who's old, in Arabic language, a person who is old, a woman who is old, they're called tab. Imra'atun right? tab. Why? Because they're elderly in age, meaning that they're nearing the point of death and demise. Right? It's a, a, a form of speaking in Arabic language. Imra'atun tab, meaning halikatun fil umar. She is someone who is elderly in age. Uh, Sheikh Shanqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir adwa'ul bayan, he says, tab, the root word of tabbat, tab, means to be cut off from, right? To be completely cut off from. And he says, and what it refers to in the Quran is to be in a state of loss and in a state of destruction. Qatada uh, and Muqatil, rahimahullah, from the scholars of the tabi'een, they said that the meaning of tabbat is to suffer loss, to be in loss. Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhum has a similar statement where he says that tabbat means not only loss in terms of the physical sense but also in the psychological and emotional sense. Meaning that not only do they suffer loss in terms of physical loss but they suffer loss in the sense that their dreams and their hopes will not come as they hoped. Right? They won't come to fruition. So what they aspire to, what they hope for, it's lost. Right? Um, Ata rahimahullah ta'ala from the students of Ibn Abbas, he said that it means to be misguided, to be led astray. And Sa'id ibn Jubayr rahimahullah ta'ala also from one of the, the great scholars of the Tabi'een, he said that it means destruction. And Imam ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir ibn Kathir, he kind of merged between all of them, right? he kind of like amalgamated all of them, and he said that what it means is to suffer a state of loss to be destroyed both physically and in other ways, and to have all of your actions rendered null and void to be misguided. Right? So it's as if he took all of them and he brought them all together. And that's because Abu Lahab suffered loss in both ways. He suffers loss in the sense that he's misguided, meaning that he won't attain guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He suffers loss physically because he will die and he will perish and he will be destroyed in this life and in the next. And he suffers loss psychologically because his whole life, his whole 14, 15 years throughout the life of the Prophet ﷺ, he has one goal, one aspiration, one objective, and that is to destroy Islam and to destroy the Prophet ﷺ. But he won't achieve that goal. He won't achieve that goal and he won't attain his aspiration or his objective in that regard. And that's why it is from the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that when does Abu Lahab die? He dies after the Battle of Badr. 
right, the most decisive of battles, when Abu Lahab now sees that the might of Quraysh with all of their army and all of their knights and all of their weaponry and everything that they took to fight and destroy the Muslims. Because remember that Quraysh in the Battle of Badr didn't have to fight and participate in Badr. They came out once they heard that Abu Sufyan's caravan was being targeted by the Muslims. But Abu Sufyan avoided the Muslim army. And he made his way safely to Mecca. And he sent a message to the leaders of Quraysh that I've, you know, I've, I've escaped. I'm safe. Your wealth, your caravan is safe. You don't need to fight. But the Quraysh had such enmity and hatred for the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims that they insisted that they would go to battle regardless. It doesn't matter now. Even though that cause, that justification is no longer relevant, we're still going to battle. So they went out with the express desire to destroy Islam and to kill the Prophet ﷺ. And so when they lose, and they lose grievously, and the Muslims take a number of their leaders as hostages, as prisoners of war, they're ransomed back, and the other Arabs and the tribes realize that the Muslims are not a force to be trifled with. They're not just a ragtag group of people anymore. They are not a force. They have a land, they have a country, they have a system, they have warriors on their side, they can fight and they can defeat the likes of Quraysh. And remember, Quraysh is considered to be the most elite of the Arab tribes amongst the people of Arabia. So Abu Lahab sees this demise. And we mentioned last week that, he, that the story that's mentioned in terms of the death of Abu Lahab begins at this point where he wants to understand, because Abu Lahab didn't participate, he wasn't there, he sent someone else in his place to the Battle of Badr, he wants to understand the reasoning behind why they lost. And so he calls Abu Sufyan and he has that discussion. And then that's the reason why he makes the statement that he does, and you know, we mentioned the whole story at length last week. So Allah Azza wa allowed him to understand this, to see this, to witness this, and it was only at this point that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed him. So that he would know that even the objective that he had, the dream that he had, was something which was laying in ruins and in tatters before Allah Azza wa chose to destroy him. Uh, Shaykh Shankiti rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, he says, Why does Allah Azza wa say, Tabbat yada, may the two hands of Abu Lahab perish? Right? Or the two hands of Abu Lahab are in demise. Why the hands? The meaning of the hands is what? It's to signify Abu Lahab as a whole. Right? It doesn't just mean may Abu Lahab's two hands be perished and not the rest of his body. The meaning is all of Abu Lahab. But Allah Azza wa specifies Abu Lahab and he specifies rather the two hands of Abu Lahab. And the scholars of, the scholars of uh, tafsir, they give two possible reasons for this. The first is, because amongst the, um, the literary ways of the Arabs, the way that they speak from the eloquence of the Arabs, is that sometimes they mention a portion of something, but they mean its entirety. They mention a portion of something, and they mean its entirety. Right? And this is something which is mentioned often in the Quran, where Allah Azza wa Jal, for example, says, ذَلِكَ بِمَا قَدَّمَتْ أَيْدِيكُمْ That's because of what your hands put forth. And Allah doesn't mean just our hands. He means all of us, right? It could be statements, could be things that our feet did, could be actions of the heart. But Allah specifies the hands. Why? Because actions are generally attributed to hands. Right? That's the most like that's the most common form of action. And so Allah specifies a certain part of the body or a certain thing. But what Allah actually refers to is the whole, the entirety. 
but he specifies a certain part, right? And this is something which Shaykh Shanqiti in his tafsir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions and he gives other examples in the Quran, like for example in Surah Al-Alaq, where Allah says, Nasiyatin kathiba. He had a forelock or a forehead that was sinful and lying, right? And he's referring to Abu Jahl, right? When Abu Jahl would um, say to the Prophet, I am the strongest person in in Mecca amongst Quraysh I can destroy if I will if I call for help everyone will come to my aid if you call for help who will come to aid you so Allah describes him in the Quran and he says he has a forehead that is sinful that is lying right and in Arabic or amongst the Arabs and, and Allah even though he's referring to his forehead or his forelock He's not referring just to Abu Jahl, all of them is a liar, right? not just his forehead. And the forehead isn't something which can speak. But the Arabs, when it comes to things of honor, when it comes to issues of integrity and honor, they refer to this part, right? the forehead. And that's why when you make sajda, you make sajda with the forehead. Because it's a sign of humbleness. So to honor someone, they refer to the forehead. So Allah Azza wa refers to his forehead as being sinful and lying, to show that he's a person of no honor, a person who has no integrity. Likewise here, Shaykh Shaqid rahimahullah says, Allah Azza wa does the same. He refers to the two hands of Abu Lahab, and it means all of Abu Lahab, but Allah Azza wa refers to the two hands because of the physical harm that he did to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Al-Imam, um, the other uh, reasoning that some of the scholars gave is that it's done or another form of something which is common in the Arabic language, is to mention the most important part of something, to stress the most important part of something. You're still referring to the whole, but you just give, by way of example, the most important part. So for example, when the Prophet ﷺ said, Al-Hajj Arafah. Hajj is Arafah. Now obviously Hajj isn't just Arafah. What is Hajj? Hajj is Mina and Muzdalifa, and Tawaf, and Sa'i, and stoning, and shaving the head, and sacrificing, and so on. But what did the Prophet ﷺ mean by Al-Hajju Arafah? It's the most important part of Hajj. Right? And so likewise, Allah Azza wa Jal, when he sings, Tabbat Yada, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to the hands, because they're the ones that did most harm. It doesn't exclude the rest of Abu Lahab, but it's because of his physical actions, that's what caused him most harm, right? And similar to it is the statement of the Prophet ﷺ when he said, "Ad-Dinun Nasiha," the religion is sincere advice. Obviously, the religion isn't just sincere advice; it's prayer and zakah and fasting and Hajj and Umrah and everything else in Islam. But the Prophet ﷺ is referring to something to highlight and denote its importance. So, likewise, they said that these are the two reasons why Allah mentions the hands of Abu Lahab, either because it's an Arabic, a form of speaking the Arabic language. You mention a part, but you mean its entirety. Or it's to do with importance. You focus on something that is the most integral and important part, but again, you still mean the entirety or the whole. Yeah. Is it not mentioned that his punishment is slightly reduced because of this? So um, the question is that the, the incident of when the Prophet ﷺ was born and Thuwayba, who was the um, slave girl of Abu Lahab, she came and gave him the glad tidings of the birth of his nephew, our Prophet ﷺ, and he freed her. 
and the brother is asking the question, is it not mentioned that because of this act, it's, um, it's said that he has a lesser punishment. To the best of my knowledge, from what I can remember, that is a weak narration. It's not an authentic narration. The only authentic narration that we have of something similar to that happening is Abu Talib. Right, after the conquest of Mecca, Al-Abbas, anhuma, the other uncle of the Prophet said to the Prophet O Messenger of Allah, your uncle Abu Talib did so much in protecting you and defending you. Was there anything that you were able to do for him? So the Prophet said, it's because of my dua that he will be on the outskirts, the outer limits of the fire. And were he not, he would have been in its depths. Right? That's the only narration that I know of that the Prophet for one of, those, one of the people that will be in the fire of hell, interceded in that way. Right? And it's considered and it's counted amongst the intercessions of the Prophet that he will be allowed on the Day of Judgment. However, it's, uh, the, the story of Abu Lahab um, is weak anyway, and it doesn't make sense from the other part anyway because of his enmity and his hatred for Islam and for the Prophet It's not something which seems to go and mesh with the rest of the Qur'an, and the Sunnah and Allah Azza wa knows best. So, Al-Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, tabbat yada, right? the two hands of Abu Lahab are being perished and destroyed. And Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Abu Lahab will perish and his actions will perish. Right? And what he's referring to now is the, the dual mention of the word tab. Tabbat yada abi lahabin wa tab. Right? You have a dual mention, a, a repetition of the word tab. We said last week, tabbat is the feminine form of tab. Right, because yada or yadain, the two hands in Arabic, is a feminine word. Right, it's because in Arabic, like in French and other languages, you don't have the word it. There is no it. Right, every word is either masculine or feminine. Right, like French and other languages. So the word yada or yadain is feminine. So tabbat yada, tabbat is feminine because of the word yadain. Right, yada, and then tab. So he said, Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah said that the first one refers to him, himself, he is being destroyed, and number two, his actions will also be destroyed, meaning both of them are futile and both of them uh, have no, no benefit. Right? And this is something which we mentioned last week, and that is why the repetition? Why the repetition? Why the mention of tab twice? And we mentioned last week, we did this, I think we did this right when we went through the uh, translations. No, didn't we do this last week? When we went through the first... Am I, am I like uh, hallucinating? Or what? No, didn't we go through the different translations like we went through Muhsin um, Khan and... Yeah, man. Who said no? Uh, if you're not paying attention, don't like make me doubt my own... Okay. So, um, so we did this last week, right? Muhsin Khan, we went through... Abdul Halim, Sahih International. I think we, we took three or four. And what we found is that there's variations, right, in the way that they translate. And we did this similarly before with, with, with the class, but we did this last week as well. So some of them said, perished is, is, are the two hands of Abu Lahab and perished is he. And some of them said, may the two hands of Abu Lahab be perished and may he perish. And others said, uh, may the two hands of Abu Lahab be perished and perished is he. 
right? And I was asking for the difference. What is the the difference, right? And this is one of the things we, which you call tadabbur, right? Contemplation. When you come across these differences in translation, we don't often stop to think why, right? We don't often question why there's a difference. We just kind of think, okay, yeah, and then we carry on. But there's a difference because, as we said, what the translator is essentially doing is they're choosing an opinion of tafsir. They've, they're choosing a statement of a scholar or from a book, or they're choosing one of the statements of the scholars of tafsir, and they're going with that because they consider it to be the strongest, or it's because the one that they know of, or whatever the reason may be, that's the one that they're following. right? And we said, well, therefore, what is the difference between those two statements? One is a dua. Right? It's almost a supplication. May the two hands of Abu Lahab be, be perished. It's almost a supplication. And the second one is khabar. It's a statement, right? The two hands of Abu Lahab are perished, or perished are the two hands of Abu Lahab, right? So some of the scholars of tafsir, and, these, and, and those variations that we found in translations, all of them are from different scholars of tafsir, right? You find them in the books of tafsir, especially in the linguistic books of tafsir. So the books that deal with the Arabic language of the Qur'an and the eloquence of the Qur'an, so if you go um, to books like Ar-Razi's tafsir, and um, Ibn Ashur, his tafsir, and others that speak about the ling- linguistic, the literary um, uh, parts or elements of tafsir, they mention this, right? So some of them said that both of them are khabar. Both of them are statements. The first and the second, right? And that's, I don't know, I forgot which translator chose which one now. Um, but some of them said that, right? Perished are the two hands of Abu Lahab and perished is he. Both of them are statements. Right? And therefore, that's what Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah, is kind of alluding to. Why the repetition? What's the benefit in repetition? They said the first one refers to himself, and the second one refers to his actions, meaning both of them perish. Right? Others said, no, it's a dual dua. It's a dual dua, two duas. May the two hands of Abu Lahab be perished, and may he perish too. Right? And so therefore, again, they're referring to action and him. That's the repetition of dua. Right? So you have both. You have the first one and you have the second one. And then you have the opinion that Imam Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala chose in his tafsir. Um, and I think Ibn Taymiyyah also kind of like, he seemed to also kind of support this. And that is that the first one is dua and the second one is is a statement. Almost as if it is an answer to the dua. Right? May the two hands of Abu Lahab be perished, and perished is he. Right? So the first one is an invocation. And then Allah Azza wa Jal is responding to the invocation. He's answering the dua. This is Ibn Kathir. Ibn Kathir rahimahullah supports this statement. Right? Some of the scholars I, I read... Um, some of the scholars said that Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, was one of the first to come and, and merge between these two. So classically, either scholars said one or the other. But Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, was the, one, the first one to come and kind of bring the two together and reconcile. That the first is therefore, and, what he, and he bases this also on evidence. He doesn't just come and, and bring this reconciliation from himself. But he says, because it's reported in the Qira'ah of Ibn Mas'ud, an, which is a, 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 a shad Qira'ah in the sense that it's not from the mutawatir readings that we have, but it said that Ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an, he would read the verse and he would say, Tabbat yada abi lahabin waqad tab. Waqad tab. May the two hands of Abu Lahab be perished, and indeed he did perish. The word qad means 
and it took place. It happened. Indeed, verily, it happened. Right? And this is the reading that he would have. As we said again, it is not a mutawatir qira. It's not one that we read with now, any of the ten qura. None of them read with this. But as we said that the authentic qira'at of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ are a type of tafsir. Right? So even though they're not considered to be Qur'an, at the very least they are a type of tafsir. So it seems as if Ibn Mas'ud is agreeing with this statement. Right? And this is where Ibn Kathir takes it from. And he says that we take it from the statement, or, or he uses as, as evidence for his opinion, the statement of Abdullah bin Mas'ud, or his reading, the reading of Abdullah bin Mas'ud, radiyallahu anhu. That the first statement, therefore, is a dua, that Allah Azza wa Jalla is saying, make dua for this, and then Allah Azza wa Jalla says, and it's been responded to, we responded to it. Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, why, is, why does Allah Azza wa Jalla refer to him in the Qur'an as Abu Lahab? Why does he refer to him in the Qur'an as Abu Lahab? Why use his kunya and not his name? Because that's not something which is common in the Quran. Allah Azza wa Jalla refers to his prophets, he refers to them all by, by name. Right? No one is called Abu Ismail. Ibrahim is not called Abu Ismail. Right? Dawood is not called Abu Sulaiman. Yusuf, Ya'qub is not called Abu Yusuf. Right? You know, the names of the kunyas are not mentioned. Most word for the kunya again? Technonym. Or whatever, yeah. The kunya wasn't wasn't something which is used in the Quran. But when it comes to Abu Lahab, he doesn't mention his, his name. He mentions him by kunya. Right? And Imam Qurtubi rahimahullah, he gives four reasons or four possible reasons for this. He says the first one is because his name was Abdul Uzza. His name, Abu Lahab's actual name was Abdul Uzza, which means slave of Uzza. And Uzza, as we know, was one of the names of the idols that the Quraysh used to worship, the Arabs used to worship. And so he says Allah Azza wa Jal doesn't call him by his name because his name obviously has within it the name of the idol, that he's a slave of an idol. And because of this, Allah Azza wa Jal doesn't use his name. Number two, the second reason that he says that's possible is because Abu Lahab was more known by his kunya than by his name. Right, his kunya is more famous than his name. And that's common right, amongst even the Arabs and even after the Arabs. Like who's the most famous example of that? Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr anhu. Right? Abu Bakr is more famous as Abu Bakr than his actual name. Right? Another example? Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira is more famous by his kunya than by his actual name. And you have many examples uh, of this. Um Habiba, Um Salama. You know, even amongst the scholars after them, Abu Hatim al-Razi, Abu Zur'a al-Razi, Abu Dawood, you know, like all of them, right? Their kunya is more famous than their actual name. So that's the second reason he gives. The third reason that he gives, rahimahullah ta'ala, is he says because a name has a more noble connotation than a kunya. A person's name is more noble than their kunya. And Allah Azza wa Jal doesn't want to give him that nobility, that state, that, or that statement of honor and nobility. So Allah Azza wa Jal refers to him by his kunya because it is less as a statement of honor, right? And um, this is like common in the Quran. It is common in the Quran where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala for the disbelievers, Allah Azza wa Jal, what He does is he doesn't give them, even in the wordings of the Arabic language, in the verses of the Qur'an, Allah Azza wa doesn't afford to them honor and status. So for example, in Surah Al-Kahf, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the people of the fire, entering into the fire, he says, describing them, وَظَنُّوا أَنَّهُمْ مُوَاقِعُوهَا 
Now, if you look at the translation in the tafsir, they all translate it as they will certainly enter into the fire. Right? They will be certain that they will enter into the fire. But the word dhan in the Arabic language doesn't actually mean certainty. What does it mean? It means to have doubt or to think. Right? It is a lesser status than certainty. And the scholars of tafsir said that Allah Azza wa does this because certainty implies strength. And it implies power. It implies confidence. So Allah Azza wa for the people of Jahannam, for the people of the fire, Allah Azza wa doesn't give them that honor of being described with words that, that have within them connotations of confidence and strength and power and honor. So Allah says, They think they will fall into the fire because to think or to have doubt has within it connotations of weakness, right? Connotations of not being sure, of not, of not having confidence. And so Allah Azza wa does this in the Qur'an by use of the Arabic language. So Imam Qurtubi rahimahullah says that this is what he does here as well. It is something similar to this. So the prophets of Allah, to give them their full status and their honor, Allah refers to them by name, right? Allah never refers to them by, by kunya. But Abu Lahab, in order to demean him, he is known as Abu Lahab in the Qur'an rather than by his actual name. And the fourth possible reason that he gives, and this is mentioned by other scholars of tafsir as well, is because of the meaning of the word Lahab. Right? And it's mentioned in the, in the verse, in, in the surah as well, as we know. When we come Lahab. What does Lahab mean? Flames. Flames right? So because his kunya is something which will correspond to the punishment that he will receive on the Day of Judgment and his eternity in the fire, Allah Azza wa uses his kunya. Right, that he was given his kunya, and that kunya is actually going to be true for him because he will spend the rest of eternity in the fire of hell. Right? And Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, he says that it is said amongst the Arabs that every person has a portion of the meaning of their name, either in agreement or in opposition. Right? So if someone is called you know, Hassan, which means good, either they'll agree with that name through their character and their actions and their dealings, or they oppose that name. Right? Someone's called you know, I don't know, whatever, trustworthy, Amin, or whatever the name may be, either the Arabs say either you have a portion of your name or you don't, right? So he says, so Abu Lahab was given this kunya, he was given it, as we said last week, because of his handsomeness, right? His looks, his beauty. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses it in a different way, and that is to show his punishment, right? And that's something which, you know, which, which, which is done, right? In, in, with other examples as well, like Abu Jahl. Abu Jahl is a is a, a, what was it called again? <laughs> a kunya, technonym, whatever, that is given to show his ignorance, even though before Islam he was known as Abu al-Hakam, right? the father of wisdom. That's what he was known as amongst the Quraysh. But when he rejected Islam, that wisdom didn't benefit him. So he became known as Abu Jahl. Right? And that's to show that he has a portion of the name and the title that he is given, and Allah Azza wa knows best. So those are the four reasons that Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala mentions. What did he lose? What did he suffer loss from? Uh, Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum has said he suffered loss of tawheed. The loss that he suffered is that he wouldn't believe in Allah, and that he wouldn't accept Islam, and that he wouldn't accept the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and mujahid rahimahullah ta'ala, who is the student of Ibn Abbas, as we've said on a number of occasions, he said that the loss that he suffered was from all goodness. Islam and everything that Islam brought, and everything that he had 
worked for and strived for to earn and to bring and to amass and to gather, he lost all of it. Right? And that's something which you'll um, see in the next verse as some of the scholars will continue to mention. And this is um, this verse, some of the scholars said, is also a proof or is one of the greatest proofs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala holds us to account for our statements. Right? Because the cause of revelation for this surah is because of a single word and statement that Abu Lahab made. And that word and statement, which was only like a couple of words, was that he said to the Prophet ﷺ, May you perish all day long. That's all he said to the Prophet ﷺ. And Allah Azza wa revealed a whole surah concerning this. Right? And so the scholars in this tafsir, in the tafsir of this verse, they say that it shows that just a statement that a person makes is enough sometimes to bring about destruction. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, مَا يَلْفِضُ مِنْ قَوْلٍ إِلَّا لَدَيْهِ رَقِيبٌ عَتِيدٌ In Surah Qaf, verse number 18, that they don't make a single statement except that there is upon it angels that are ever watchful and that they will enumerate their statements. In the hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, on the authority of Bilal ibn Harith, radiyallahu an, the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a person will make a statement that will bring about the pleasure of Allah. They can never imagine what will be written because of it, and Allah Azza wa will give to them His pleasure and His mercy until the Day of Judgment. And likewise, a person may say a statement that will bring about the anger and the wrath of Allah. They would never imagine that something would happen as a result of it, but Allah will write for them His anger and His wrath until the Day of Judgment. Right? A single word, a single statement that a person says, you don't even think about twice. And that's why you have those hadith, and there are many in the sunnah of the Prophet like the hadith of Mu'adh radiallahu anhu, when he said, O Messenger of Allah, and will we be thrown, and will we be punished because of what we say? The words that come off our tongues, and the Prophet said, May your mother be bereaved of you, and will the people be taken, dragged on their faces, and thrown into the fire, except as a result of what they say, except as a result of the words that they say. And in the hadith of Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu, also in Sahih al-Bukhari, the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a person will speak and say a single word, and because of it, they will continue to fall into the fire, the distance of the east to the west. Now they will continue to fall within the fire of hell, the distance between the east and the west. May Allah Azza wa save us from that. Verse number two. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after giving us this introduction to this surah, Abu Lahab will perish, and everything that Abu Lahab has will perish, and will be, he will be destroyed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then explains this. And he says, مَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُ مَالُهُ وَمَا كَسَبْ It did not benefit nor profit him what his wealth, nor that which he earned or which he gained. Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, Aisha, Mujahid, Ata, Al-Hasan, Muhammad ibn Sirin, others from amongst the scholars of tafsir, they said that what this refers to his, um, his, his kasab, what he gained and what he earned, it refers to his children, refers to his offspring, refers to his progeny. So he's speaking about his wealth and he's speaking about his, his progeny. Because the Arabs used to boast about these two things, their wealth that they had and their children. Because children in a tribal society are considered to be your source of strength. The more sons that you have, the more children that you have, the stronger that you are. Right? Because tribes are made up of clans. And clans become stronger the more that they have in number. So you have bigger clans, 
like the clan of the Prophet ﷺ, Banu Hashim, Banu Muttalib, Banu Umayyah, Banu Makhzum. These are the big clans because their families are big. And then you have lesser clans and smaller clans, like the clan of Umar radiallahu anhu, Banu Adi, which was considered to be a small clan from amongst the clans of Quraysh. It is done by number. And so, and this is something which is also uh, repeated in the Quran. For example, when Allah says, Al Malu wal Banuna Zinatul Hayatid Dunya. In Surah Al Kahf, wealth and children are from the adornments of this life. Because this is what the Arabs and the Quraysh used to see as sources of strength. So Allah says that his wealth didn't profit him, nor what he gained, what he earned. And so many of the scholars that you see, they said that it refers to his children. Why his children? It is reported that Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, once he called his people one day when he was calling his people to Islam, calling the people of Mecca to Islam, Abu Lahab said that if my nephew is speaking the truth, meaning that I will be resurrected on the day of judgment, and Allah will hold me to account, then I will ransom myself with my wealth and with my children. So he rejected, I don't believe. But if so, you know, if it happens just for the sake of argument, I will ransom myself with my wealth and with my children. So Allah revealed, مَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُ مَا وَمَا His wealth and his children will not benefit him, they will not profit him. His wealth, Abu Aliya rahimahullah ta'ala said, that it's referring to his aghnam. He was a man of livestock. That's the source of Abu Lahab's wealth. He had livestock. And his livestock was what made him wealthy. And Abu Aliya, um, this person, very um, famous scholar from amongst the tabi'een, Abu Aliya, rahimahullah ta'ala, it is said he was born in the life of the Prophet sallallahu but he only accepted Islam during the Khilafah of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Right? So he's one of those unique individuals that lived towards the end of the life of the Prophet sallallahu And even though he lived during that time, he didn't accept Islam, he accepted Islam in the time of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And he heard from Umar, and it said that he even read some of the Qur'an from Umar, and he read the Qur'an from Ubay ibn Ka'ab, and many of the senior companions of the Prophet wasallam. and he became from the greatest scholars of his time, and is considered to be from the teachers of the likes of Al-Nakha'i, and Hassan al-Basri, and others. Hassan al-Basri, as we know, is one of the great scholars of the Tabi'een, right? one of the foremost students of Ibn Mas'ud, radiallahu anh, and others. Abu Aliya used to say, when he was asked about Al-Hassan, I was learning my religion before he was even born. Right. Before he was even born, I was already studying the Quran and so on. Right? And he said in another narration, Abu Ali said about himself, I learned the Quran 10 years after the death of the Prophet to show how, how early he was in Islam. Right? From amongst the tabi'een, he was from the senior ones. So Abu Ali said that the mal, the wealth that Allah was referring to is the livestock that he used to have. Another said that it's all of his wealth and you know, it is a common... Um, a common methodology in tafsir that the scholars of tafsir give, as we said, examples. So when he says it is his livestock, it doesn't mean exclusively his livestock, he's just giving an example of what he was well known for. Right? And just as Wama Kasab, his children, were the most famous of that which Abu Lahab had, right? and what he was boasting about. But it, he had other things also that he used to boast about as well. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't find the narration. It's mentioned in the books of Tafsir. But when I tried to find it as a narration in the books of Hadith, I couldn't come across it.
I didn't find it. So that doesn't mean it's not there, obviously. It just means I, I, I didn't find it. Right? But it's mentioned in the books of, of, of Tafsir. The ma in this language, ma aghna anhu maluhu wa ma kasab. What type of ma is this? Right? Ma in the Arabic language, you know, for those of you that don't want to get bored by Arabic grammar, has a number of different like, uh, things that it can do depending on the context. One of them is negation. Right? And that's the one that, that's chosen by many of the scholars of tafsir. Right? The majority of the scholars of tafsir, Ibn Kathir, Tabari, others, they said that it is the ma of negation, the majority. So his wealth and what he earned did not benefit him, didn't profit him. Right? Others, like Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah, in Fatih al-Qadir and others, and it's mentioned in the books of tafsir where they speak about again the Arabic language they said that it's also possible that it is ma istifhamiya ma istifhamiya ma for questioning meaning and what did his wealth and what did that which he gained benefit him in the end right so it's posed as a question rather than a negation right and both of them you know have their place in you know it's possible that both of them can be valid even though the majority of the scholars of tafsir chose the first that it is negation rather than being framed in a question everything that he earned everything that he had all of his wealth all of his lineage all of his ancestry all of the power the status that he had all of his children that he boasted about everything that abu lahab had none of it will benefit him right and none of it will profit him and this is something which we find throughout the Quran, whether it's in the story of Pharaoh, the story of Qarun, and in the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, like in the story of uh, in the Hadith where the Prophet sallallahu alaihi said to Fatima and to others from amongst his family, "If you don't say La ilaha illallah, I can do nothing for you." Right? All of that stuff doesn't matter if you don't accept Islam. So the scholar said something similar here, that it is his, uh, it is either a ma of negation or a ma of istifhamiya, a question. The point is, both of them, Allah Azza wa Jalla is saying, none of that will benefit him, and none of that will profit him. Aisha radiallahu anha, in the authentic narration of Ibn Hibban, she said that indeed, from the best of what a person earns and gathers, is their children. Right? And then she recited this verse, ma aghna anhu, ma luhu wa ma kasab. Right? To show that the word kasab, his earnings and what he gathered, it meant his children and his offspring, and Allah Azza wa Jalla, knows best. And Imam al-Dahaq rahimahullah ta'ala said that what he earned refers to his actions. Refers to his actions. His actions and his wealth did not benefit him. But the majority of the scholars of tafsir seem to say that it refers to his children um, specifically or what he earned and what he gathered in terms of the things that he used to boast about rather than having it more generic. And Allah azza wa knows best. Okay, I think we'll, we'll stop there inshallah ta'ala for today. Any questions? Anything online? Anything from last week? Uh, from the lecture we about the telephone law, how does that relate to the Okay, so the question is when we spoke about the ten qiraat, how does that relate to the seven ahruf? Right. Seven Ahruf, this is like a whole, it's like a very long discussion. And maybe, inshallah, you know, what we can do is, um, you know, maybe we'll do like a whole session just on like things like the Ahruf and some of the other, um, huh? After Surah Baqarah. <laughs> After Surah Baqarah. Uh, some, uh, like some of the other sciences of the Quran. Um, because also one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to... Um, at some point, do a lesson just on an introduction into the main books of tafsir that we're using, 
right? Because often I say Ibn Ashur said or Ashanqidi said and so on, but I want us to be familiar with those names, the names of the books as well, and also like what they're known for, right? And, you know, maybe some of the strong points and some of the weak points of those books as well, just so as a source of familiarity. But the Sabatul Ahruf, there is a big difference of opinion as to what it stands for, what it means, do they still exist, not exist, are they contained within the ten qiraat, or they completely separate, and so on and so forth, right? Um, the the stronger of those opinions, and Allah knows best, seems to be that the seven ahruf refer to seven variations that you can have in the Quran. Like, for example, the variation between singular and plural. The variation between bringing something forward or delaying it in the Quran. Some taqdeem and ta'akhir, bringing something forward or delaying it. Right? And this is there's verses of the Quran uh, where this is possible within the Rasm of Uthman, within the Uthmani script. So for example, the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, فَيَقْتُلُونَ وَيُقْتَلُونَ They kill and they're killed. Because the statement is, the words are the same, you can say, فَيُقْتَلُونَ وَيَقْتُلُونَ right? And this is one of the qiraat mutawatira. They killed and they killed, they just turn them around. Right? So this is like, this seems to be the, um, the stronger of those opinions. Um, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best, but it's, it's, a, it's a very long discussion which if we go into now, uh, but you want to know what's the, what the difference is between the two? If there was a difference, there is a difference. They are not the same thing. Even though it was some of the, the opinion of some scholars that the seven qiraat are the seven ahruf, but there's more than seven qiraat, not only seven. So it's not the same thing. There is a difference between the two. However, do they still exist or not? That is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars of Islam. Um, was it something that after Uthman radiallahu anhu told everyone to read in a certain script that many of those were lost? Because the seven ahruf, it said, were based upon the lahajat, the, the dialects of the Arabs. Did they still exist? Because Uthman radiallahu anhu, what did he say to Zayd ibn Thabit when he gathered and compiled the Quran? Whenever you have a difference, use the language of Quraysh. And there's books, there's PhD um, theses that have been written on what is the language of Quraysh that is used in the Quran, the other Arab tribes wouldn't have used. Right? And, and, and so, but that's like a whole different discussion. Okay, barakallahu feekum. Salaam bin Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa